1: our nation's capital. It's Deadline D.C. with Brad Bannon.
2: Welcome to Deadline D.C. with Brad Bannon. I'm Brad Bannon. I'm a national democratic strategist, a columnist for The Hill in Washington, D.C., and a political analyst for news radio stations KNX in Los Angeles and WGN in Chicago. Mondays on Deadline D.C., I talk to the people and players behind the politics and policies that drive our great nation forward. This week on Deadline DC, our guest in the first half hour is Dr. Rachel Kleinfeld uh, from the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace to discuss threats to free and fair elections in the United States. Then, in the second half hour, environmentalist Tim Zink and our own executive producer, Mark Grimaldi, join me on the provocative progressive political panel to discuss rising gasoline prices uh, and the need to aggressively fight climate change. But first, before we get to our guest, uh, we have a clip uh, from President Biden discussing Uh, election subversion in the United States.
0: While this broad assault against voting rights is not unprecedented, it's taking on a new and literally pernicious forms. It's no longer just about who gets to vote or making it easier for eligible voters to vote. It's about who gets to count the vote. Who gets to count whether or not your vote counted at all. It's about moving from independent election administrators who work for the people to polarized state legislatures and partisan actors who work for political parties. To me, this is simple. This is election subversion. It's the most dangerous threat to voting in the integrity of free and fair elections in our history. Never before have they decided who gets to count, count what votes count. Some, some state legislators want to make it harder for you to vote. And if you vote, they want to be able to tell you your vote doesn't count for any reason they make up. They want the ability to reject the final count and ignore the will of the people if their preferred candidate loses. And they're trying not only targeting people of color, they're targeting voters of all races and backgrounds it's with a simple target. Who did not vote for them? That's the target. It's unconscionable. I mean, really, it's hard to it's, — it's hard to declare just how critical this is. It's simply unconscionable. We've got to shore up our election system and address the threats to election subversion, not just from abroad, which I spent time with Putin talking about,
2: but from home. That was President Biden talking about election subversion. Our guest in the first half hour is Dr. Rachel Kleinfeld. She's a senior fellow in the Democracy, Conflict and Governance program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. There, she focuses on issues of the rule of law, security and governance in post-conflict countries, fragile states, and states in transition. Uh, her Twitter handle is Rachel Kleinfeld. Uh, Rachel, let me ask you this question. Uh, are we a fragile uh, state? Uh, you usually associate problems with elections, you know, in Belarus or the Ukraine or someplace in Central America, uh, but, uh, and I used to think that too, but then uh, we rolled into the last two presidential elections, uh, there are all sorts of uh, stories and evidence about election subversion. Um, are we a fragile democracy?
3: I don't like the term because I find it, it obscures more than it illuminates, but do I think we're a democracy facing a lot of trouble? I certainly do. Um, and I, I think that we're facing a lot more than most Americans realize. You know, Americans tend to think, oh, we're the oldest democracy in the world. We've got strong institutions. We'll weather all this. But we forget we've really only been a full multiracial inclusive democracy since 1965. That's when the Voting Rights Act passed. And it was only then that we had 11 states in the South and that were Confederate states and that then passed Jim Crow laws that were incorporated into a a multiracial democracy. Before then, we had basically one party rule in the South. If we were looking at another country, we would say these were one party states, they weren't democracies. Um, You couldn't have two parties that that really competed in the South. So we've really only been this kind of a democracy, trying to be a multiracial democracy since 1965. It's not very old. We haven't been trying this for very long and we haven't been succeeding at it for very long.
2: Okay. Uh, Rachel, what do you consider the uh, greatest threats uh, to American democracy?
3: I think the biggest threat is that we have one party that um, has given up on being a conservative party, which you can agree with or don't agree with, but a conservative party is fine in a democracy. You can have ideological disagreements. What we now have is a party that has decided to be an anti-democracy party. They don't believe that the rules of the game will let them win. So they're trying to change those rules. I actually think they're wrong. I think that what you're seeing among voters is that the rules of the game would let them win, but that's not how they see it. And so a lot of good conservatives who are not anti-democratic, but who don't have anywhere else to turn are going along with an anti-democratic party because they're not going to vote for Democrats. That's one problem. The other problem is that a lot of Democrats just don't care. They're so focused on their own issues, the environment. Immigration, abortion, what have you—things that really matter—but not on democracy. That they're letting those issues overcome their worry about democracy. But you know what? If you don't have democracy, those issues are not going to get solved either.
2: Okay. Uh, what is? Uh, let, let's let's uh, try this. Uh, what do you make of uh, the uh, uh, the uh, controversy uh, over the? Uh, uh, that uh republicans are the the essentially I if you look at national polls, somewhere about seventy percent of the Republicans in national polls uh don't think Joe Biden uh won fair and square and they think the election uh was stolen uh from Donald Trump. And I mean it seems ridiculous, but you know, most Republicans feel that way. And what kind of problems do you have, essentially, when such a large number of people don't believe in the legi- legitimacy uh, of the of elections?
3: So it's huge. You cannot have a democracy where people don't trust elections. And we so I'm a comparativist. I work on democracies around the world. And, and I used to work in electoral politics in America. But then I went back to my policy work internationally and I came back to America to work because – it was so clear we were on the trajectory that so many failing democracies overseas were on. And it's not just a new thing. This distrust was new in, in elections, but the distrust itself is much older. The left has been sowing distrust after Watergate since Vietnam. You see the scores of distrust going down since then. The right has been sowing distrust in government since the Gingrich Revolution and Ronald Reagan. These are deep, deep, long-term efforts to sow distrust in our institutions, and they've worked. And so you see now that um, it's easy to manipulate public opinion. And in 2016, we saw it with the Russian hoax. It wasn't that Russians weren't manipulating our elections. They were. Now we see it with the Republicans. Now it's based on basically nothing. But once you have a conspiracy-minded public, which we do now, we have a conspiracy-minded public the way we used to see that in Egypt and other countries where people just didn't trust their government, didn't trust their fellow citizens. Conspiracy-minded publics believe conspiracy after conspiracy. It really doesn't matter which one.
2: Yeah, that's kind of a scary thought. Uh, our guest in this half hour is Dr. Rachel Kleinfeld. She's a senior fellow in the Democracy, Conflict, and Government program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Uh, we're, in this half hour, we're talking about the threat to uh, free, safe, uh, free and fair elections in the United States. Uh, and I guess the point I uh, want to emphasize is that uh, uh, not only is uh, there a threat to f- free and fair elections across the world, uh, but there is a severe threat to free and safe elections here in the United States. And that's our topic uh, for ha- this half hour. Uh, when we get back, we're going to talk uh, about the uh January 6, uh, Capitol Hill coup. Uh, And we're also going to talk about the need for reforming uh, the electoral system to make it a fair and safe democracy uh, and attempts to do that. So we're going to take a break now uh, with our radio audience, but we're going to keep going uh, with our TV audience. And again, our guest is Dr. Rachel Rachel from the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Welcome back to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Uh, If you're listening on the radio uh, and you would like to see us as well as listen to us, uh, there are all sorts of ways you can sh- see the show in, uh, instead of, uh, uh, in addition to watching uh, to hearing it. Uh, you can find us on our video feed on Twitter at twitter.com front slash Brad Bannon. You can find us on Facebook at tinyurl.com uh, front slash BB Facebook Live. And we're also on YouTube at tinyurl.com. Front slash Brad on YouTube. Our guest in this half hour is Dr. Rachel Kleinfeld from the Carnegie International Endowment uh, for International Peace. Uh, we were talking... Well, let me, let me ask you a, a general question, Dr. Kleinfeld. Maybe I'm being kind of paranoid, but it seems to me that democracy, the democratic tradition we're used to, uh, is slipping away. Uh, does one... Are we in danger of losing it completely? You know, a friend of mine has been telling me uh, for a couple years now, I guess ever since the 2016 election, that the United States is headed into an undemocratic fascist system. Have things got that bad, really?
3: Uh, let me point this in two directions, and, and um, I don't mean to be cute about it. I, I think it really needs to be thought of um, in, in two ways simultaneously. One is, um, we are at really a dire moment, and it is a turning point moment. It's it's a moment when, if I looked at another country, if I looked at a Venezuela or a Hungary, these countries that um, really did lose their democracies through democratic means, and that's what we're seeing internationally. We see generally that democracies now lose their democracies by voting them out, and then the people in power who gain power by, by free and fair elections uh, manipulate the system until um, free and fair elections can no longer be had. That's the majority way that democracies are lost now. Um, When you look at those countries, the way that they lose them is because the opposition can't unite and get it together. And so I would say to um, progressives, it is time to unite and get it together. We really are in an acute democratic moment. And it's why I say, no matter how much you care about abortion, immigration, gun rights, you name it, whatever your issue is. Democracy has to come first, and it needs to be um, creating unlikely allies that allow you to say, look, voting rights has to come first. We need to make sure there's a level enough playing field that you can win elections so that you can have the Supreme Court, so that you can make these policy arguments, because you can't make the policy arguments if you can't have a level playing field. It really is getting that acute. And if nothing else can convince you, looking at the Supreme Court uh, issues this this term, which are touching on guns and abortion and, and so many other issues, um, should convince people. So, yes, we are at that acute a moment. The other side is America's lost our democracy many times over. So the other way to look at it is we didn't have a vote for women for many, many years. African-Americans got the vote and then lost it for another hundred years. We've come through many periods where non-property owners didn't have the vote for a long So we've had periods in which We've had more and less democracy and we've come through it and we've um, eventually made our way to a different place. We're a very lurching forward momentum sort of a country. And that's not unusual either. That's fairly common. If you look at um, democracy scores globally, all of Europe goes through this huge dip in the 20s and 30s. Their democracies are going up after the monarchies. And then, of course, World War II hits, and they hit fascism, and they come down. But then they go up again, and now most of them are higher than America. So are we at an acute moment? Absolutely, we are. Might we get it back? I believe we will get it back, even if we're at a pretty acute moment. Most democracies at our level of money and consolidation get it back. But, you know, I don't really want to live through 50 years of a lack of democracy. Um, I think that probably most of your listeners don't either. And so, uh, I would take the acuteness pretty seriously.
2: Uh, let's talk about uh, uh, ways to uh, strengthen democracy in the United States. Could you outline some steps, steps that we should be taking uh, to, uh, to make democracy more viable and more of a living breathing thing in the United States than it is
3: now? Absolutely, so some things are kind of boring and quotidian, but just should happen. The Freedom to Vote Act, which is in Congress right now, is a good solid act. It would do all sorts of positive things. It would protect election workers from violence. It would fund elections so that they were fairer and more supported and you would have PPE, you know, like uh, pens at your election stations and they could open on time and all the boring things that nevertheless disenfranchise people. It's a really important act and it's not gonna get people out of bed the way that abortion rights will, but it really should. So there's things like that. Then there's things that um, also don't tend to get people really excited, but should because representation matters. So uh, getting rid of party primaries and having ranked choice voting. Nobody really knows what that means, but what it means is you can have a lot more candidates like in New York City's recent elections. Those candidates can show a lot more flavors of democracy. You can have a Green Party candidate. They might call themselves a Democrat, but they're really a Green Party candidate. They're really involved in the environment. Somebody else might be really a NARAL candidate who's really pro-abortion rights. Somebody else might be more socially conservative but liberal on economic issues and more of a kind of working class candidate. You would have a whole panoply and the same on the right. And what you get from that is a great deal more representation. And you really get to see, well, what do the voters really want? Are they left-wing because they care about abortion rights? Or are they left-wing because they care about the working class? That's a really valuable thing for a democracy to have. It gives people more representation, more sense that they, their voices are being heard. And so those kinds of reforms are both informative to the party and, and let people be heard again. And as people are heard again, there's more connection with their represent- representatives and so on. Those representatives can represent again. So those things need to happen. Once you start getting those things, you can get all sorts of more exciting uh, reforms like participatory budgeting. They do all over Europe and in some American cities where citizens actually get in the room. You can have kind of like a jury duty, a hundred people get in a room and get to decide on the budgets for their cities and really get to be informed about what happens and make decisions together. That's really important. So there's a lot of different ways in which citizens can um, start taking more of a role In their democracies but none of that can happen if we lose our democracy and keeping our democracy requires us to start coming together not setting aside our pet issues but realizing that we can't get to our issues if we lose our chance to vote
2: what was the most important thing that uh, we can do uh, to make sure that there's uh, not another repeat of what happened on january 6th after the 2024 presidential election?
3: So the most important thing will be voting in 2022. Um, it's a midterm election. Those tend to be lower turnout. Um, primaries tend to be lower turnout. A lot of uh, districts are considered safe because their their turnout in their primaries are so low. Um, but in fact, if if both sides, both parties turned out, especially in open primary areas where you can vote for either side, things can change, um, as we saw in Georgia. So you really need to vote. It still matters. We still do have the ability to vote. We're not hungry yet. We could be. Um, We can gerrymander our way into that situation, but we are not there yet. And we could be as soon as 2024 in certain states. And so it's really important to come out and vote in 2022. Um, It's also really important to- Dr. Kleinfeld,
2: I'm sorry, but we're running out of time. I want to thank you very much for joining us. Our guest in this half hour is Dr. Rachel Kleinfeld uh, from the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, talking about the threats to free and fair elections in the United States. We'll be back after this break. Okay. Welcome back to Deadline DC, Brad Bannon. Uh, in this half hour, we have the provocative progressive political panel. We're going to talk about uh, rising gas prices. Uh, but before we do, we have this clip from a uh, speech that uh, Congressman Ted Liu from California made on the House floor about rising gasoline prices.
4: As our economy reopens and demand surges big corporations have taken advantage. They've squeezed consumers for profit and raised costs on everyday Americans. Corporate greed is a primary reason why costs on American businesses and families have gone up. I'll give you one example. The cost of refining oil has gone down and yet gas prices went up. So let me repeat that again. The cost to oil companies have gone down and fuel prices went up. That's why I'm joining President Biden and calling on the Federal Trade Commission to investigate whether oil and gas companies are engaging in anti-competitive or potentially illegal behavior to jack up your gas prices.
2: That was Congressman Ted Lieu from California discussing the rise of gasoline prices. Uh, for many Americans, gas prices are the leading indicator of the conditioning, condition of the economy gas pump sticker shock is the number one cause of presidential uh, disapproval of Joe Biden's handling of the economy. So Joe Biden is in trouble even though unemployment is way down and the stock market is way up. TV and social media are saturated with images of $6 gallon gasoline in Los Angeles. Why are gasoline prices so high? And what can Joe Biden do to stop the price gouging by big oil? You can read the rest of this column and all my columns in the Hill at muckrack.com front slash Brad Bannon. Today we have our two guests on the provocative progressive political panel. Our guest panelist today is Tim Zink. Tim is a principal at Molecule Public Affairs. Uh, a public molecule, a public affairs and business company. Tim has spent his entire his distinguished career shaping public policy and politics. His Twitter handle is green crude. Joining Tim on the panel is on the progressive panel is political activist Mark Gamaldi. Mark had has worked for several Democratic presidential candidates, including Joe Biden. Uh, He is also active in campaign finance reform and efforts to promote cancer research. His Twitter handle is Mark J Grimaldi. That's Mark J G R I, M A L D I. Okay, let's uh, start with Tim. Uh, Tim, why are gasoline prices going up uh, so high so fast?
4: It's it's a it's a combination of the. overcharged economy that Joe Biden is responsible for creating. The fact that demand is up uh, skyrocketing, uh, people are, are getting out of their COVID woes and getting on the road and utilizing gas, gasoline and diesel. And so it's a, it's a demand driven um, issue that we face, but also on the supply side, demand and supply are, key criti- are critical indicators of gasoline costs. On the supply side, uh, refiners are holding back in terms of the supply they're producing today, according to the Energy Information Agency, and supply uh, is down about 20 percent in overall in the United States. Uh, some sections of the United States are being hit harder than other sections of the United States simply because there's a limited supply of refineries, for example, on the West Coast compared to the East Coast. So. Uh, it's a function of our own gravitas and our own ability to drive a big, strong economy that gas prices are keeping pace with that. Globally, though, uh, the, the people that are supplying us uh, gas and oil um, you know, uh, around, uh, around the globe, Russia and primarily the OPEC sit, uh, states, um, are also uh, keeping a, uh, a, a control over, over, over supply. And so you have global supply uh, down as well uh, for crude oil. That is a major component of gasoline costs.
2: Okay. Uh, Mark, let me ask you a political question. And my political question is uh, Joe Biden is taking a hit uh, for inflation. And again, I think the... uh, The reason, you know, inflation is such a big issue because people, you know, hit their gas pumps, uh, they fill up their tanks uh, and they watch the little dials spin around uh, until it gets a lot higher than they were used to paying. Uh, And so why is the inflated gas prices so detrimental to Joe Biden's standing? Uh, when there's so much else going on in the economy, uh, like the rapidly disappearing unemployment rate, uh, the stock market's doing well, uh, what can Joe Biden do about this, if anything?
1: Well, I think you saw him um, make one focused move, which I, I th- or one in particular, which was to release 50 million barrels of oil. Um, in an effort to bring down the rising gas price uh, in the United States, which was a smart move. But I also think, and this will kind of explain the second part of my answer, um, he needs to, I think, illuminate the issue with the bully pulpit about the, the record profits that the oil and gas companies are raking in right now. You have an exclusive report out from the Guardian newspaper today um, that the largest of the oil and gas companies made a combined $174 billion in profits in the first nine months of this year. And those, those 24 top companies um, are doing that, despite the, the being able to increase production uh, instead, they're doling out these uh, dividends to shareholders. I mean, Exxon alone posted a net income of almost $7 billion just in the third quarter, which is as high as it's profit since 2017. And they're seeing their revenue jump by 60% since last year. So it's not just, you know, supply and demand. You also have these oil and gas companies jumping on this situation and blaming uh, supply and demand issues. So I think that that also needs to be, um, taken into account and highlighted and the public pressure should be put on these companies until there's a change.
2: Okay. Uh, we're going to go to break now, I think. Uh, and, uh, you got about we three
1: can... minutes. So I'll tell you what, I'm uh, going to steal some of minutes. that before okay. we go to Tim and say, okay. also,
2: well, uh, let's, uh, we'll, let's, uh, try this. Uh, uh, Tim, what advice would you give President Biden?
4: Well, well, I think uh, Mark uh, hit the nail on the head. I think he needs to, um, you know, bring uh, all the power of the presidency upon, particularly the large oil and gas refining companies, and put pressure on them to provide, you know, a more accurate <clears throat> price, uh, you know, given the market conditions. Um, and then I think the other thing. Uh, that the president can be can be doing is doing what he did is as increasing supply around the world by getting other countries to join in the release of the strategic petroleum reserves, like like the president did with China and other participants around the world. I think it's very effective in sort of backfilling the the marketplace. But there's not a lot the president can do to lower gas prices.
2: <clears throat> okay, uh, if there's not a lot he can do from lowering gas prices, how uh, how can he get out from under the fact that people are blaming him for, uh, gasoline and price increases? I mean, the reality is he may not be able to control the situation, but Americans want him to.
4: Right. And, and I think, well, he used, needs to use the bully pulpit and sort of, uh, put the blame where the blame should lie or rest, which is on oil and gas. They're taking advantage of a of a unique supply and demand situation that is occurring because we're coming out of the COVID economic pressures.
2: You know, the president is a mild-mannered guy, and many Democrats don't feel he's been aggressive enough beating up on Republicans, beating up on the oil companies, uh, he's trying to take a more bipartisan, non-confrontational role. What do you think of that?
4: Uh, if, if I was in his shoes, I wouldn't take that position. I actually don't think bipartisanship is sort of in the vocabulary of today's Congress um, or in the, in the business of government right now. How can you have a bipartisan approach when only one side believes in facts? And so it's very difficult to have a bipartisan sort of uh, opinion when uh, one side has completely set effects to, to, uh, you know, to address.
2: Okay. Okay. uh, We're now in the middle of the provocative progressive political panel on Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Uh, We are discussing rising oil prices. Um, Our guests are uh, environmental activist Tim Zink and progressive activist Mark Grimaldi. Uh, we're going to be back talking about uh, rising gasoline prices and its effect on the economy uh, and also on Joe Biden's presidency. Uh, when we get back, I also want to talk about uh, climate change and the provisions of uh, in the Build Back Better Act, uh, which would advance the fight against climate change. Uh, we'll be back after this short break. With more of Deadline DC with Brad Bannon and the Provocative Progressive Political Panel.
1: Oh, you got to welcome back the radio audience, Brad.
2: Okay. Welcome back to our radio audience. This is Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Uh, we're talking about, uh, gasoline prices, clean energy and build back better. Uh, Tim, why is it that there's such a strong movement for, uh, clean fuels on the West coast, uh, you know, more than anywhere else?
4: Well, um, so, so one, the politics seem to have, uh, come, uh, there seems to have been a tipping point, uh, Brad, and you've seen this in your own polling here on the West Coast, but the tipping point occurred a few years ago where people have just made, have come to the conclusion out here on the West Coast that um, fossil sources of crude oil um, are detrimental to the health of the environment, particularly the Puget Sound region and the oceans and the forests that we live in out here in the Northwest and throughout uh, the entire West Coast. And so there seems to be a political tipping point that has occurred. That's number one. Number two, oil and gas's arguments for not taking action on climate change have simply fallen apart. And their ability to um, make the economic arguments that it's going to be detrimental to people's economic situation, haven't borne out to be true in states that have had these policies in place, Washington, Oregon, British Columbia, for quite a long time now, over a decade. And so now their arguments uh, for not implementing rules and regulations to reduce uh, pollution, carbon pollution in the atmosphere is simply falling on deaf ears. And so voters are really uh, enormously concerned about the impacts of climate change today, and particularly here on the West Coast, have seen that it hasn't damaged the economies of Oregon and British Columbia at all. In fact, just the opposite. It's actually created a new uh, new job and new e- uh, economic opportunity for those who are, are uh, building renewable energy projects. In fact, oil and gas is getting into it in, uh, on, on its own. Uh, the, the major refineries are under uh, refit to completely produce renewable diesel uh, at major refineries in California. There are four major refineries that are under under uh, <clears throat> construction uh, to change the types of fuels used in California. So the process, the policies are actually working. Okay, uh, Mark. Uh,
2: if you look at national polls, uh, there are a lot of people. Uh, concerned about climate change, uh, but the concern hasn't reached uh, crisis proportions. Uh, Do you think it ever will?
1: Yes. um, Unfortunately, you know, at that point it could be too late if people don't act while there's still a chance to uh, do something about it. You know, we just had the COP26 climate summit in Glasgow and the progress that was made, I believe, you know if the goals are hit which you know some of the agreements are non-binding which you know we can say what we will about those but uh would get us to 1.8 degrees uh, celsius above the current temperature uh, however scientists have determined that we need to stay below 1.5 degrees celsius uh, in temperature increase uh, in order to uh, prevent irreversible damage to our climate And each year, Brad, I know you and and Tim both have seen this happen to the country and the world, but we're seeing these 100-year storms uh, more frequently than 100 years and in a lot of areas that we're not used to seeing them. Um, Last year, it was Texas's power grid. Um, You're seeing more and more of these types of uh, intense extreme weather events in all parts of the country. So I think it's getting harder for people who were not concerned about this to just continue to bury their head in the sand. Um, But obviously you want to prevent those types of things. So I do think we will hit critical mass in uh, the demand for change and changing policies. But the question will be whether or not we can do so Um, in time to actually prevent irreversible damage. Okay.
2: Uh, Tim, uh, what is the Biden administration's record? Now, we've already passed uh, one piece of uh, infrastructure legislation. We've got another that is being debated and battled upon in Congress. Uh, What has the Biden's administration record uh, uh, been on developing uh, clean fuels?
4: Yeah, so I think it's been the most aggressive administration uh, since uh, um, the um, Bush administration implemented the what's the federal standard, which is called the the uh, 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 the Renewable Fuels uh, Standard, the RFS. Uh, so since the uh, since the Bush two administration implemented that standard, the the Biden administration has been much more aggressive. Uh, both in um, managing the EPA in terms of its regulatory process to uh, require refineries to reduce the carbon intensity in accordance with the standard, uh, whereas the Trump administration let uh, many uh, small refineries off the hook and allowed them to file uh, waivers, uh, the, the, the Biden administration has refused to process those waivers. That's one. two. Uh, both Build Back Better and the infrastructure bill and the reconciliation package have been substantially loaded up with the necessary uh, incentives and funding of uh, grants and so forth to actually help the country make the transition in an equitable way. And so this administration has done an excellent job of of addressing that. The third thing that this administration done has done is brought uh, brought a whole-of-government approach to aviation emissions, this is the first time any administration has ever done that. Aviation emissions have to be one of the most difficult emissions to reduce, just simply because you can't uh, you can't fly uh, air, airplanes, uh, particularly uh, single aisle aircraft, on on batteries. We're always going to need some sort of energy dense fuel to do that, which is in this case a hydrocarbon. Uh, but we have the ability to produce low carbon hydrocarbons. Um, It's called sustainable aviation fuel. It's 80% less carbon intense. And so the administration is making significant investments in that regard as well. There's There's an unending list of what they've done on the electrification side. That seems to be easier, but we have to rebuild our entire national grid, which they've funded significantly as well. And the entire national grid has to be built out all the way to the consumer's home, because if you're talking about charging your home vehicle, Most homes are not set up with 220 distribution uh, for you to fast charge your vehicle today. And so there's substantial infrastructure that needs to be invested in. We probably should be doubling the efforts that the administration has already put into it.
2: Okay. Now, let me ask you this. Uh, As I mentioned before, last year in Washington State, uh, the... uh, legislature under the leadership of Governor Inslee passed groundbreaking uh, environmental legislation. Could you uh, tell us uh, about that and how it's uh, being
4: implemented? Yeah, absolutely. So over the last two years, two legislative, three legislative sessions, two budget sessions, and one interim session, the legislature has passed uh, substantial uh, legislation. One, 100% clean electricity. So by 2030, there'll be a net neutral, zero uh, net neutral in terms of carbon intensity scores in the state of Washington, and zero fossil by 2040. Uh, that that provides us the cleanest electric grid in the United States, which we already have. We're already moving that direction, but it puts it in statute. Um, we've done another a number of other things, too. We put an economy-wide price on carbon, which is called the uh, cap and invest, uh, the Climate Commitment Act. It's a very... Uh, Comprehensive piece of legislation that sort of takes what was done in California under cap and trade and improves on on the on the work that they had done in uh, California substantially. Uh, so it's a much better uh, uh, proposal, a much better law. And then the third thing that the administration, the uh, Inslee administration, and the legislature did was pass a low carbon fuel standard um and low carbon fuel standard would reduce the carbon intensity of gasoline over the next 25 to 30 years uh bring it to uh the goal is to bring it to a net neutral um uh by the by 2050. so um substantial progress made out here uh in the northwest by the way we're the fifth largest refining state in the nation and you can um, it just proves that you can win these political battles against oil and gas with the right kind of campaign.
2: Yeah, and I should say that uh, it was pretty clear that uh, even though this legislation has proved to be so successful, uh, Big Oil uh, fought it with everything they could muster. They did. Okay. Uh, that's it for Deadline DC today. I want to thank um, all our guests. Uh, we had Dr. Rachel Kleinfeld from the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace on in the first half hour. Uh, and I want to thank uh, the guests today on the provocative progressive political panel, uh, environmental activist Tim Zink uh, and progressive activist Mark Grimaldi. Uh, make sure you listen to Leslie Marshall. She'll be back tomorrow. Be safe and be strong in these turbulent and troubled times. And make sure you listen and watch Deadline DC with Brad Bannon, Mondays at 3 p.m. Eastern or the podcast anytime. Uh, We'll see you in here and uh, we'll see you next Monday uh, with more of progressive uh, talk, aggressive progressive talk.
1: Thanks, Brad. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, guys. See ya. Take care. Okay. Take care.